I'm Najaswat for BizNews.com, and joining me is one of the world's leading voices on climate change, atmospheric physicist Dr. Richard Lindzen. Dr. Lindzen, I really appreciate your time. Glad to be with you. You've been an expert on climate change for over four decades now, having started your research in the mid-70s. Briefly walk me through your career and what it was about climate change that captured your attention. It's a peculiar question. I mean, you know, do you think things only become interesting once they're political? General circulation of the atmosphere. You want to know why you have the current climate. You have dozens of regimes throughout the earth. You know various, when you speak about the climate of the earth, what the hell are you talking about? South Africa has a very different climate from New England. The Pacific has many climate regimes. You have the monsoon regimes in India. So there are a lot of things to understand. And uh, it had nothing to do with the environmentalism. It was to understand how nature is. You've claimed that believing that increased carbon dioxide is the largest driver of climate change is akin to believing in magic. What evidence supports this argument and what are the actual effects of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah, um, you're asking a, a complex question. Uh, carbon dioxide is uh, a relatively minor greenhouse gas. But the question is, uh, when you speak about what controls climate, and you're speaking about dozens of different climate regimes, and you're saying, is there one knob that controls the whole work? Makes no sense. That is belief in magic. Uh, but, you know, greenhouse effect is useful for one climatic index. Mm -hmm. Namely, why is the Earth different from Venus or Mars or Mercury? Those are huge differences. They depend on basically the mean radiative picture, which includes the greenhouse the distance from the sun, the amount of radiation you get, and so on. Now, within a given planet, in particular the Earth, which we're particularly concerned with, <laughs> the differences in climate that we refer to, ice ages, the very warm period 50 million years ago, are really pretty tiny compared to the differences between the planets. And those quote, tiny differences that we obsess on for good reason uh, are not due to the greenhouse effect. They're due to the transport of heat between the tropics and the high latitudes. and They are part of the dynamics of the system. They depend on a number of factors. They're primarily what, what does carry the heat. Well, the ocean carries some heat, but in many respects, the most important thing is the so-called highs and lows. If you look at a weather map, uh, it's a little bit different in the southern hemisphere, but here you have the highs and lows going from west to east, carrying weather. 
when you have the wind blowing from the north, it's cold, south, it's warm, and this oscillates and gives work to your weathermen. Okay. Uh, in any event, uh, those same things carry heat to the pole. And uh, what determines them is many things, but uh, mainly the differential heating between the tropics and the pole. So you have a system, it, it has these features, and all of a sudden you obsess on the greenhouse effect, saying uh, that, you know, you end up having people say things really stupid. You know, we, we've increased the temperature one degree or 1.1 in the last 100 years, 120 years, 150 years, and uh, it's been accompanied by the greatest increase in human welfare in the history of the Earth, but one half degree more in its curtains. Only a politician could come up with something quite that absurd. But on the other hand, when you get to the UN and other things, it's politicians that run it. And uh, they've enabled this hysteria, they're frightening children, lives are going to be finished in short order. Even the UN's IPCC, in its one working group that deals with science, that's working group one, it's a thousand-page report, they don't speak about an existential threat. So you have other reports from the UN that are not scientific that say, oh, yes, it's coming to the end of the world. And politicians say, well, this is what we have to go by. I don't know what you do. It's a, It's an evil movement. And uh, it's causing immense damage. And it is trying to condemn people in Africa, in the developing world, to perpetual poverty. Mm-hmm. And you have to ask, why would this be a goal? Mm-hmm. I don't know. One of the cornerstones of this, let's call it an agenda, is the constant bombardment to the public of reports on the rise of extreme weather events. Is this, are these reports a patent false or attribution to climate change false? First of all, yeah, you're pointing to something very important. Even if it were occurring, how do you relate it to this one number? But it's not even true. The And again, going back to the IPCC, the UN's report, they say there is virtually no evidence of a relationship between extreme events and climate change. Now, they say that, but that doesn't fit the politics, so they say something else. It's a little, I don't know if you know the American comic of years ago, Groucho Marx. Sounds like a wonderful statement. I have my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a good description. On the politicization of this climate change, what do you think the end goal could possibly be for the manipulation of data given by the IPCC and the dismissal, dismissal of you know data that contradicts it? Well, I mean, the energy sector is vital. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the harnessing of fossil fuels that has led to the massive development of the Western world. 
uh, you know, the progress since uh, the invention of the steam engine has been the major feature in world history. On the other hand, because it's such a large sector, there are opportunities to make fortunes even if your only activity is destroying the system. So, for example, I mean, in the U.S., our current budget is, uh, you know, showing trillions of dollars for climate change. Well, whether you think it makes sense or not doesn't matter. Somebody's going to get those trillions of dollars, and they have a real interest. I would assume that the predominant funding would go to renewables. Pretty much everything that's not nuclear or fossil fuels. What about the tools that uh, extract energy from this? They're not renewable. They involve slave labor. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. No, you have material usage. You have destruction of landscapes. It's almost as though the environmental movement has decided to commit suicide and go in for things that destroyed the environment, which is what you're doing with uh, solar panels and windmills and so on. You're killing birds. You're destroying the environment. These have lifetimes of 10, 20 years. You don't know how to dispose of them. Now, this has nothing to do with the environment. It's a power play. I had an interview with Professor William Happer, and he said that the climate change activism movement is a joke and comparable to a coalition or organized crime unit of religious fanaticism. And you've expressed the same sentiment. Sure. To what extent do you think that this is a result of people having pure intentions but not being properly informed? or just trying to spin the situation far away from what the actual reality is? It's a little hard to assess motivations. Uh, You're certainly taking uh, the public, making them feel that if they get rid of carbon dioxide, they're doing something virtuous. Of course, you know, as I've occasionally pointed out, Let's say somebody came up with a good device they could get rid of about 60-70% of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What would be the result? The result would be we'd all be dead. Uh, that's a very peculiar pollutant, one that we can't live without. No. Um, I think it's based a lot on ignorance. Um, you know, you have economists talking about tipping points. And the geologists know that we've, through most of the Earth's history, we've had far greater amounts of CO2. There's never any evidence of a tipping point. This is a very implausible thing. But it sounds scary. Um, it's pretty clear, looking back on the history of the issue, when it got started in the early 80s, that it was already a governmental aim. You had these meetings at Villach in Austria and Bellagio, and uh, there would be people interested in climate attending these, usually about a 100. And those from the government were all in favor of this, and the others were scratching their head and asking, what's this about? 
So somewhere along the way, somebody must have decided this is the way to go. They started pushing for it. Uh, global cooling wasn't panning out. Mm-hmm. I think from the beginning of Earth Day, it was obvious you wanted to control the energy sector. At first, it was sort of amateurish, you know, acid rain, global cooling. And then, you know, someone realized, I mean, no matter how clean you made energy, it would still produce CO2. So let's go after that. You'll never get rid of that without getting rid of uh, fossil fuels. Um, there's no evidence, whatever, that this is well meant. But still, we have, depending on the source or how it's measured, a consensus of between 90 and 100% of climate scientists that agree that it's anthropogenic climate change. How is this the standing reality? Look, in 1988, when Jim Hansen first testified before the U.S. Senate, Newsweek ran a cover issue on it, showing the earth on fire, with the claim beneath it, all scientists agree. No scientists were asked. Mm. This is the way you convince the public. The public is pretty illiterate when it comes to science. And I think what is often ignored is, I don't think the public feels comfortable about that. You immediately assure them the scientists all agree, you don't have to worry about it. And they do that whether the scientists agree or not. Dr. John Christie said that it's actually a completely falsified number. Yeah, oh yeah, the show. And it was a reduction from, you know, this week in 88 saying all scientists agree, now it was only 97%. It's a fake number. It's just designed to tell people they don't have to understand the science, just go along. Mm. But then my question is, if it is, in fact, such a small percentage of scientists that do. But remember, we have to ask what they agree to. You can frame the issue that it was 100%. You know, for instance, if you asked, uh, would increasing CO2 increase or decrease temperature? Most would say it probably increases it slightly. Mm. And then that's listed as agreeing that the end of the world is coming if we increase CO2. They're two different questions. There are so many potentially, not, maybe not even potentially, but catastrophic end results of eliminating CO2. So why do you think more climate scientists haven't actually you know, been vocal about the complete inaccuracy of these you know, consensus figures? It's a good question. I mean, you know, one of the things that has changed that perfectly obvious. Uh, This was a small area in the 1980s. When you had a meeting, if you got 100 people, uh, that was pretty substantial. Um, And uh, very few of them thought that there was anything significant going on that would be called existential. So what happened? I mean, uh, if you look at funding in the U.S. for climate science, between 1989 and 1996, when Clinton-Gore administration came in, 
it increased by about a factor of 15. You literally created a whole new field, and you knew that the people who were brought in know, knew that the reason for the funding was this issue. And indeed, if you didn't go along with it, you lost your funding. Sir, you know, uh, my funding ended as soon as I went public. One of the common criticism against, you know, your credibility and your views on climate science is that you have ties to the fossil fuel industry. Is this true? No. I mean, you know, that everyone in this from that 15-fold increase came in it for the money, they assumed anyone opposed it, they might have gotten money from someone else. At MIT, ExxonMobil does support some work, only on the part of people like Ron Prynne who support the alarm. I mean, the funniest one was, I think they attacked me for writing an article in 1991 for Cato's Regulation magazine. And their argument was 10 years prior to that, uh, Cato had received 10% of its funding from ExxonMobil. Now, for this article, I was paid $200. So presumably $2 of that was from ExxonMobil 10 years prior <laughs> to convince me to change my view. I don't know. I mean... I... Just to sort of balance the scales to get two sides of the story, I had an interview with Professor Guy McPherson, and he is, he sits with a very deep conviction that we are in the midst of abrupt climate change and that the methane released predominantly by the Arctic Ocean will be the end of humanity by 2026. What's your take on this? Well, he's entitled to any science fiction he wishes to produce, but there's no scientific evidence of that. These are scare stories. I think once people realize that uh, the public is amenable to scare stories, they get carried away. Yeah, and fear incapacitates logic. No. So, what, in your view, is the political, economic, and environmental implications of this move towards net zero and green energy and an abandonment of the fossil fuel industry. Pure malice. Plus profits for a few. Um. I mean, you know, you look at it and quite obviously, you know, you have people like Gore and Kerry and so on making hundreds of millions of dollars, flying around the world, ignoring all the things that they would prohibit ordinary people. I suppose for these people, it's a return to feudalism, where we, us peasants should know our place and they should have their privilege. In 2001, you proposed the iris hypothesis on climate change. What was the premise of this? Well, that was a question in some respects I think less important now. But, you know, since they were making a big fuss over changes of one degree, two degrees, so on, uh, the question is why CO2 doesn't do much 
And it turns out that uh, they had assumed, assumed feedbacks that instead of trying to preserve a situation, would act to make whatever we do worse. And um, there were plenty of problems with these feedbacks. They, they were improperly implemented. And what we looked at, and this was with the cooperation of NASA at the time, was were there any obvious things occurring that were negative feedbacks? And it did look as though essentially upper-level clouds in the tropics were acting in such a manner as to oppose the greenhouse effect. And uh, that seemed like, you know, an important feedback, and it's one which I think still is likely. Um, and it plays a very important role in a, uh important phenomenon. Really, it doesn't matter too much at present, but it's something called the early faint sun paradox. I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but the sun's output is increasing with time. If you go in back two and a half billion years, the solar output was appreciably less than it is today. And yet the evidence is the Earth did not freeze over. The Earth maintained a temperature that was very similar to today's. The question is, how could it do that with a 20-30% reduction in radiation? And it turns out that this iris feedback is entirely capable of balancing that change. And so I think that remains a fairly substantial argument for their, the system being stable. What are the epistemological issues around climate change research? Yeah, I mean... You have to remember a couple of things. One, this was a small field. Two, the problems it was concerned with were, why do you have different climate regimes? Things that dealt with the here and now. Um, when you got to research, when you increased the funding by a factor of 15, the talent wasn't available. And so you introduced new topics, and one of them was climate impacts. Now, this had nothing to do with understanding the physics of climate. If you were working on cockroaches, and you said, my grant is to study the role of climate on cockroaches, you got funded. So you have all these impacts, climate and obesity, climate and diabetes, climate and this. One wanted a piece of the action. And they all became, quote, climate scientists. Now, it's worth remembering, for instance, in 1990, my department at MIT, no one called themselves a climate scientist. There were good reasons for that. Climate was a very comprehensive thing. I was working on dynamic meteorology. Colleagues were working on oceanography. There were marine geochemists. None of us pretended to comprehensive knowledge of everything about climate. All of a sudden, you have people who know nothing about the physics who are climate scientists. 
because they got a grant to find out whether diabetes was related to climate. <laughs> so I have to laugh. You've said that climate variability is actually the thing that we should be looking at to understand what is changing our climate and not human activity. Just can you summarize the difference between anthropogenic climate change and climate variability and why it is that you believe it's climate variability that we should be looking at and not human activity? Oh, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't look at things. I mean, people should be free to look at what they want. <laughs> but, you know, we do know that uh, climate, long before there were even people, was changing pronouncedly. You know, even before the Industrial Revolution, there was a little ice age. It had all sorts of documents, you know, villages in the Alps saying the uh, ice is overtaking our village. Um, you had uh, the ice ages every 100,000 years uh, in which you had massive glaciation. And, you know... This had nothing to do with people. You would need to understand those. And there was progress uh, with the Ice Ages. A man called Milankovitch noticed that they bore a relationship to orbital variations. And this, you know, took a while, but there, were, there was a climate program trying to find out how this worked. And um, I think we have a pretty good idea at this point of why that worked. And Milankovic uh, was pretty much right. I mean, he said it would depend very much on the solar radiation in summer at high latitudes. And that was a well-known feature of glaciology, that whether a glacier grows or not doesn't depend so much on winter. Winters are always cold in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. But in summer... If the snow that accumulated in winter melts, you don't build a glacier. If the summer is cool and the glaciers, the snow doesn't fully melt, then you build each year. You have thousands of years to build up your glacier. Well, you know, it turns out, for instance, CO2 follows temperature in the ice ages. And it changes enough to change the flux about a watt per meter squared. One. If, on the other hand, you look at the Milankovitch parameter, how much does the incoming solar radiation vary over the course of this ice age cycle? It's 100 watts per meter squared. That's much more significant. <laughs> Uh, you know, and then you have people say, well, yeah, I gather, you know, you can't say that CO2 following it causes it, but it must be its amplification that was important. But I mean, you know, it makes no sense. One watt versus a hundred. When I spoke to Dr. Judith Curry, I mean, her story is just a very unfortunate reflection of what's happened to dissenting voices. I mean, she said that she's essentially unhirable and now she just had to go to the private sector. What have you come face to face with as a result of going against the grain consensus for so many decades? Well, I mean, you know, Judith had her own. 
you know, Judith at first was a strong supporter of global warming and attacking anyone who questioned it. <laughs> it's interesting that she changed. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah, there are a couple of things that happened. First of all, I'm older. So I had a senior position. I was doing research in a lot of areas. And um, there, the National Science Foundation was funding my research in fluid mechanics. And so that continued a while, and I sort of did climate on the side. Um, the Department of Energy at first tried to fund people on all sides, objectively. That continued through the 90s, but by the 90s they were told, quit that. And so the manager, research manager there, did me a favor I had not fully expended my funding, and she let me keep it past the due date without adding anything to it. So that allowed things to continue a bit. With publication, again, I was well-known in the field and so on. And so I published some papers in the American Meteorological Society's monthly bulletin. And um, they got through, they were reviewed, but the editors were all fired immediately after publication. And the paper was never retracted there? No. <laughs> but I immediately invited people to criticize it, and that <laughs> when the criticisms were published, we were not permitted to answer for six months, which was very unusual. That's the manipulation of the justice system at its base. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, the situation was rigged. It was very much a march through the institutions. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem, I think, for professional societies. Uh, whether you're a member of the American Physical Society or the American Meteorological Society, or for that matter, the American Musicological Society, <laughs> yeah, you're a member of a group of people who have a professional interest and they elect a president and an executive manager to take care of the public relations and so on. I think uh, the people pushing this issue realized all you had to do is uh, turn an official, the executive manager of something, and he ends up speaking for the whole group. And so you never actually sample the people. And so you take over the American Meteorological Society, the National Academy, the American Academy. All of them are top-down organizations with managers. Mm -hmm. And they've done a terrific job of that. I mean, you know, that you could have some naive hypothesis that something as complex as climate uh, is controlled by a single control knob of a minor gas that uh, controls a couple of watts per meter squared out of hundreds. It's just, you can only do this if you have a public, including uh, political officials, who are totally illiterate or enumerate versus science. You mentioned all these people who are getting support. 
what you find is scientists only have to say something like they think uh, CO2 increasing will give some warming. And they leave it to the politicians to say this means the end of the world is coming. And their backup position is, I never said that. Are there any anthropogenic elements that humans could increase or continue with, like fossil fuel consumption, that will possibly and possibly have catastrophic consequences for planet Earth? You know, a nuclear war could do that. But you know, driving your SUV? No. Uh, uh-uh. And that's, you know, appeals to, I guess, certain people's vanity that we are all powerful. Just to close off with, what would you recommend as a way out of this? Just for lack of a better word, it feels a little bit like a trap. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's a very serious question. Uh, when you co-opt the institutional structure, then you have people like, you know, the World Economic Forum, uh, the EU, full of bureaucrats who are just uh, infatuated with the power they might have. It's going to be very difficult to break out. There are political parties that are opposed to this. One hopes maybe they'll gain power and just trash this. Uh, time will, of course, play a role, but I hope we don't have to wait to see the destruction of modern society and uh, realize it had nothing to do with climate. I'd like to think we can get out of this before then. As it stands, are we at risk of getting close to or in any way close to a climate catastrophe? I suppose it depends on how you define it. If you define a catastrophe as having three inches of extra rain one year, then we're always near catastrophe. If you really mean an existential threat, the answer is no, we're nowhere near that. Um, it's, it just makes no sense. Scare mm. stories, you especially want to give it to kindergarten kids because they have no defense mechanism. Um, you know, there may be some hope that the developing world, I mean, clearly China, India, Russia are ignoring this. They know it's not. They're sitting by and watching the West self-destruct and looking at, wondering about what divine good luck they have. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're not going to do anything about it. If you look at, if you're really worried about CO2, you know, we've spent trillions of dollars trying to reduce it and get to net zero. And you look at CO2 versus time and it continues without any change to increase. So we've had no impact for that. So, you know, you'd ask yourself, if we have no impact and we're worried about it, why aren't we building resilience? No, we want to make ourselves more vulnerable so we'll be properly punished. I don't know. I mean, you know, that's nuts. It does sort of sound like the, you know, reading between the lines message of the environmentalists. So. Yeah. Why not? No, they hate humanity. They want power. 
and they don't give a damn about the environment. And they certainly give no attention to feeding starving people. When that is, in fact, a real problem. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Lindzen, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you again. Good luck. <laughs>